All right. Tonight I want to talk with you about what some have called the um, mystery of the Trinity. I think mystery is a good term. What does mystery mean? Okay, it seems to be unknown, all right, at the beginning. But what, what happens within biblical mystery particularly, what happens? What was once unknown, what? Is revealed to us so that we can know it. And, it, and so the term mystery, you'll hear Paul talk about it in Galatians chapter um, 3. He's very specific at the very beginning to say that his ministry was to hold forth the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. What had previously been unknown to them now became known through his ministry. So the Trinity is known as a mystery. So what do I mean by that? I mean that at one time it was unknown. But God has made it known to us in His Word and through the ministry of His apostles, particularly prophets and apostles, that we might know who He is. All right? But when we think about the Trinity, we, we um, have lots of different things that come to mind. Analogies. What are some of the analogies that you've heard to describe the Trinity? A what? Water. H2O. I'm glad y'all got the one, one of the ones I was thinking about, right? Why is it described to be a trinity? Yep. Liquid. Solid. Gas. Right? Has, has the ability to be all three of these things. And so people will say it's, the trinity is like the H2O. It can be solid, like the Father, Liquid like the sun, gaseous like the spirit, right? What's some other analogies of the Trinity? Apple, an apple. Um, an apple and an egg. An egg is also a famous one um, because an apple and an egg, they're getting at the same thing. So you have, I'm not an artist, so y'all get to laugh tonight. You have the shell. You have inside that, you have... The white of the egg, and then inside that you have the yolk, right? Or in the apple you have the, the peel, you have the meat, and you have the core. Or some people describe it other ways with the apple. But that you see what it's saying. So it's saying God is like the egg because the egg is a shell, and it's a white, and it's a yolk, and they're all together in one thing. What's another analogy? A hand. The hand is similar to the, um, to the shamrock. St. Patrick used the shamrock when he was um, trying to teach the islanders uh, uh, about um, the Trinity. So we'll, we'll, again, you know, terrible artist. I need Ann Robertson. So it's terrible, but it's three leaf. I don't know. Three, three leaf clover, right? <laughs> a three-leaf clover. So you have the, yeah, I'm not a Notre Dame fan. So you have the three leaves of the one clover pod. And so we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is uh, one way to think about it. Another one, family roles or relationships. Yeah, father, so, so you say, I'm a father, and I'm also a son, and I'm also a brother. And so this is a way of describing the Trinity. 
So we have, we have lots of uh, ways of describing Trinity. Are any of these in the Bible? No. Mm-mm. And all of them are, if we're not careful, are a violation of the second commandment. God says, don't make any images of me. Why? Well, because H2O is not a, really a good way to talk about the Trinity. Because unless you're super scientific geek, there's nowhere where all of these are the same, in the same state at the same time. Now, I know. A physicist would come in and say there is a perfect point at which all three states exist in the same place. The problem is that's theory. It never really exists anywhere. So when we talk about it, sometimes it's liquid, sometimes it's solid, sometimes it's gas, never all of those. The shell, you see the problem with it. The shell is not the yolk, and the yolk is not the shell, and the white is not the shell, and the white's not the yolk, and the shell's none of them. And so we, we, it's not really... If I go to cook you breakfast in the morning and I give Amy uh, yolk and I give Noah white and I give Hannah Gray shell, how's she going to feel? The shell has nothing to do really with the yolk or the white, does it? It's not edible. So it's not, not really good. And the same with the shamrock. The shamrock's not really correct because it's like little peaks of godness are kind of leaking out different places. But, and the family rolls again. I'm not a father to my brother. It's, it's, it, it all breaks down. It's not, it's not really good, but I understand what we're trying to do. But just because I'm picking on you guys, let me tell you how uh, the church has, at times in its existence, um, diagrammed this for us. Father, you seen this? Anybody? Son? This is called the Trinitarian Shield. Is anybody familiar with it? A lot of the ancients wrote this way. Ancients and confessions and the like. See, if I get a theological piece, I can draw it. Father, and then they would write this, is not Son, and Son is not Spirit, and Spirit is not Father. And then they would draw in the center the word God and say, is, is, is. This is called the Trinitarian shield. You'll see it on ancient seals and, and the like of the church. Okay? Hmm? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's a very similar with the... With the uh, Circles which intersect on a triangle. It's a very similar thing. So you see what this is saying? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit, and the, and the Spirit is not the Father. And none of them are the persons, yet they're all one essence God in this, right? But there's a problem. Does anybody see the problem? What would you, if you just saw this diagram, nobody explained it to you, what would you think? There's three gods. That might be one conclusion. And also, we could say, how many circles are there? One, two, three, uh-oh. Now there's four. 
Now it doesn't look like a trinity anymore. It looks like a quadrarian or whatever you want to call that. Like there's this thing out here that is God. There's this thing that hovers out there in the middle that's God. But how does that really relate to all this? So even so, I'm letting you off the hook. All of these sound good in some ways. They may work a little, but they don't image God correctly. Neither does the even the church's attempt, the the traditional attempt to draw it, doesn't work. And what I've had to come to is that's the way God wants it. He doesn't want us to draw pictures of Him. He said, don't make images of me. It won't be helpful to you. Don't do that. And if we just follow the Ten Commandments, Bruce, it would help us out a lot, you know. <laughs> and that's not anybody's intent. I mean, that's not anybody's intent. When they do things like this, trying to help people understand it. But you see that the, the falsehoods that are created unintentionally but still very dangerously for us. And so this is just, so what, how should we think about the Trinity? And that's what we want to talk about tonight is the Trinity itself and the beauty of the Trinity. Um, Thomas Aquinas in tw- the 1200s began to talk about the Trinity and, and he, he started his teachings talking about the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. So this is how he got there. And this may be how the world a uh, Christian world, I think, still relates in our day. So just follow me. So we're walking in this world here, and we see all these created things, and we ask the question, where does this come from? Right? And so we say, well, every cause has to have something that caused that. It has to be a, an agent that causes that. Something bigger than this. And so <coughs> from looking at nature, we look and say, well, there has to be a cause to all of this. And because in philosophy we had to have something back here that doesn't draw its existence from something else, you end up with what's known as the uncaused cause, right? And so philosophically it works. As you think about the world, you think, so you see God as the creator. And from Aquinas' teaching, they begin to think of God as, and you see it in their prayers, the Almighty. That becomes very famous through the church teaching. And that's where the, the Creator God, the Almighty. God is Almighty and God is the Creator. But I want to argue tonight that that's not really where we should start. That's not really how God basically reveals Himself to us. He's much more personal than that. He's not a philosophical reason, He is a being, He is real, He is tangible. He is, a, 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 we might say, the only pure being in all of the universe. He's the only one who's not a becoming. We are not beings. We are becomings. R.C. Sproul would say to you, uh, we should call ourselves human becomings. Why? Because we're always changing. We're always, you, you know that. We're always experiencing change. God is a being, a pure being. He is who He is. His name, Yahweh, means I am who I am. Uh, I be who I be, and I've always been who I be. It never changes. God is a being, and He is the purest of all beings. He's not a philosophical concept that exists as an uncaused causer. What's the problem with Creator, seeing Him as only a Creator? The problem is we end up with a very disconnected view of God. Not a relational God, but a deistic God. He created everything, he wound up the clock, and he just now it's just ha- everything's happening. 
This is a very famous philosophical belief system in our country's founding. You have to be careful reading our founders' papers because we unintentionally we think they're Christians and they're not. Most often they are deist. They do not believe in a personal God. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, some of the great men um, that helped found this country. Very intelligent, very philosophical, but not Christian. Okay, so in this creator system, he's very, he's very much separated. Also, he's weak. Now, that may shock you. Why would a creator God, a God that in his essence or in his um, most core identity is a creator, why would he be considered weak? Yes, because to express himself, he needed us. To express himself, a creator God, in his, not that God's not the creator, don't misunderstand, it's in his core being. Is he best identified to people as the creator? No. Why? Because that means he needs a creation. And he's not able to express himself without a creation. He's handicapped by how his creation responds to him. And now that the creation has fallen apart and fallen into sin, what kind of weak God creates something and then loses control of it? So we have a problem, right? A second way that people slippery slope kind of thinking is people reason that God is a, um, is a good ruler, an authority. This is the way your Muslim friends think about God. God is the ruler, right? And so he is just. And his relationship with you is you have offended him and now his justice has to be satisfied. So therefore, there are, in essence, five principles by which you must live purely, perfectly, so that he will accept you. He becomes the good cop, right? He becomes the good cop. The best you can ever hope for is to get out of the speeding ticket. Or to clean your life up and not get speeding tickets anymore. Cop, you pull out of here, you go... 90 miles an hour up to the golf course and you survive the S-curves and there's a cop sitting there, he's going to stop you, right? And he's going to say, he's going to get out, he's going to say, he may be a very friendly guy. He may say, why were you going 90 miles an hour? He say, well, I just wanted to see if my car would stay on the road at 90 miles an hour. Well, you know, you didn't really hurt anybody, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to overlook it this time. You've offended me, but I'm just going to let you go. Okay, a ruler God has no way to save people because his justice has been offended, and all of us have offended it, and there's no way to get back from that. Because once you've offended the ruler, he's offended. Once you've been unjust, you can't be just again in your own, in your own self. So, some, so when you start thinking about God, if you go down some of these trails, you're going to image a God that's not really the biblical God. And if you go down philosophical trails, you're going to end places where they may be partially true. God is a creator. God is just. God is the ruler. But that's not the core of who he is. He reveals the very core of who he is to us. And that's, that's, so that's kind of where I want to go. So what we need to do then is we need to ask the question, what was God doing before the creation? What was God doing? If we want to know who this God is, what was he and what was he doing prior to the creation of the world? John 17. Take your Bible and turn to John 17. Instead of ruling in philosophy, <clears throat> instead of trying to figure him out through diagrams, we can read his word. 
<coughs> because the mystery has been revealed. 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, Father, verse 1, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we know that Jesus is talking about the, his relationship with the Father before the world existed. And at the end of his life, he's saying, I've done everything you commanded me to do on the earth. Leading up to the cross, he's headed to the cross. This is the night before he goes to be tried and then put to death. So he says, I've been faithful. I've kept what you sent me to do. Now glorify me through the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection. Glorify me. Let me ascend back to your right hand to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. Now for time's sake, we're going to move down. Jesus prays a lot of you could spend months here, but look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you, what? Love me before the foundation of the world. What was God doing before the foundation of the world? Loving himself. That's why 1 John says, God is love. Because at the very core of his identity, of him identifying himself, is his fatherhood. His relationship with himself. We don't serve a weak, needy God. We serve a God who had all that he would ever need or want inside himself. The truest way to understand God is to think God is has one identified himself as a father, which speaks to community. So he has a community inside himself, which is centered on love. You saw the pastor in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, faith, hope, and love. But what's the greatest? Love. Why? Because in eternity we will dwell like he dwells with himself, in perfect, unbroken, un undamaged, perfect love. The community in heaven won't be based on faith and it won't be based on hope. It will be based on pure love. Perfect love. The love of the Father. Why? Because for the first time in our existence, we will step from this mortal fallen life where we are loved by God and we have the love of God living in us and pouring out from us, but we don't experience it perfectly because we're fallen. But when we cross over into the un fallen, perfect, new heavens, new earth, and we dwell with Him, we will dwell in a river of love, of communal love with Him and with... We will be caught up into the Trinitarian love that God had with Himself before the foundation of the world. Again, 1 John chapter 3 says, You know love because He has shown you love by what? By showing, giving you His Son. And we know not what we will be, but on that day we will be able to know who we are. How will we know? Because He will look at us and we will look at Him and we will see as we are seen. What that means is that we will be in the image of the Son. 
So God will love the Son so exquisitely that He put forth His church, which the Son loved and won through His death and burial and resurrection and ascension, and now He's giving it back to the Father. And so this triangle of love, this this unbroken, unfallen, perfect communion of love is happening, and we are caught up in it. We are simply byproducts. Our salvation is a byproduct of Him loving Himself. And we will dwell with Him forever. So the the best way to explain who God is is to know Him as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's how He reveals Himself. And what was He doing? He was loving Himself. So it only makes sense that He would then be able to save us based on that love. That's how He saves us. You say, well, He's just. How can He save us? We've broken the law because it is core. He's able to love us in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's able to forgive us in His Son, Jesus Christ, because Jesus satisfies His justice and brings to us His love. So I challenge you, stop thinking of God in all of these unhelpful ways and contemplate Him in who He really is and who He says He is. Now, I have to be able to prove that, so that's what I want to do a little bit now. I want to I prove what I've just said. Um, Augustine said it this way. <coughs> it's because you think I'm confusing. So now I'm going to read you Augustine so you'll really know a smart person because I'm not that smart. There are, there are, this is his definition, there are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each is God. And at the same time, all are one God. And each of them is a full substance. And at, all, at the same time, all are one substance. The Father is neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is neither the Father nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. You lost yet? But the Father is the Father uniquely. And the Son is the Son uniquely. And the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit uniquely. All three have the same eternity, the same immutability, the same majesty, and the same power. And then God birthed lesser thinking pastors so all of us could grasp hold. If that was the guy preaching to you every Sunday, you'd be like, wow. <clears throat> right? Augustine. Brilliant. But I would say even there, it's, it's, it's hard to grasp I and mean, put our minds around his definition. It's very detailed, very good, very dangerous. What is he warring against? The early church had a debate about this. And just to make it uh, simple, there were two Two things that happened in the early church. One branch, we're going to drop the technical names, one branch was known as Unitarians. God was one. They did not believe in three persons. They just held to one in that way. And then, there, and then also there was a group known as Modalists, who the Modalists sided with saying, that yes, there's one God. And so because of that, the three persons we see interacting, particularly in the Gospels, are not real persons. That's one God, so he was the Father, and then he wanted to express himself, so he then became the Son. And then after expressing himself, he then became the Holy Spirit. You know them as oneness Pentecostals now. That's who they are. Our brother T.D. Jakes, or the man T.D. Jakes. I shouldn't call him a brother. You say, well, that's not nice. T.D. Jakes is not a, he is a heretic. I didn't say that. He said that because he doesn't believe in the God we believe in. Yes. No. He's reprofessed that at the elephant room just about a year ago now. So he has never, he's, he wants to be accepted by the church 
by the mainstream church, but he won't die to this idea. So when you, when you try to talk to a one that's Pentecostal, what you will find is they'll say, so um, Jesus is at the, in the garden, John 17. He's praying. Who's he praying to? He's praying to himself. He's just talking to himself, but he does that so we can kind of see his thoughts. And he talks to a father, but it's not really a father. It's really just him. And the Holy Spirit's not really a spirit other than him. It's just him. It's one substance and one person, okay, in Unitarianism. In, in modalism, it's three persons that are charades of really persons. They're just one again. So we, we get all these uh, early church problems that start. And then God blessed the church with a man named Athanasius who came along in the early 300s and he said no, <clears throat> and he gave us the Athanasian Creed that God is very God. He is he is one God, yet He is expressed to us in three persons. So in essence, He's one God. In persons, He's three. Okay, Our threeness is not our oneness. Our oneness is not our threeness. That's what separates orthodoxy from, from heresy. Okay, Now what do I mean by that? In our essence, in the essences, my children get this talk at the supper table when they ask me about God. The essence is the same, one. He is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's not talking about number. That's talking about essence, substance. He is God. There's only one God. We're monotheists through and through. There is one God. Okay? So in His essence, He's one. But in His personhood, He's three. Okay? So our oneness is not our threeness, and our threeness is not our oneness. It's two separate things. So what is He? Then He is the Father who is from all beginnings and has no beginning. He's the Son who is begotten from all beginnings but has no beginning. In other words, the Father has always begotten the Son. Always, eternally, He begot the Son. And the Spirit is sent forth from the Father through the Son from all eternity. They've always existed in this relationship, in this community. Or as Jonathan Edwards says, the Father knew Himself so well that from the beginning He expressed that in the Word, the Son. From the very beginning, from before all time, from all of eternity past, He has known Himself so well that He expressed Himself in a being, in a, in a, in a, I mean in a person, and that person is the Word. So you have the Father, knowing Himself is the Word. And then he loved himself so deeply that that expressed itself as the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the reason Edwards argued that is John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So here's God, the Father, and he knows himself. That's Lagos, that's the Word, and that is the Son, the second person of the, the Trinity. And they love themselves so much that that's the Spirit. That's the fountain of love flowing between them is the Spirit. And it's so pure, it's so perfect, it is its own person. So there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the way we, in our core, we have to believe that God is a Father. In His core, He's not the Creator. In His core, He's not the Ruler. Because if He had created nothing, He would still be the Father. If he had not created nothing to rule, he would still be God. He doesn't need the creation. The creation is a gracious act on his part 
The, cre- the creation is, is simply Him in His most loving sense creating. I mean, it's just a beautiful expression of who He is, but it's not who He is. It's not in His essence. So if all the world never existed, God would still be God. You know the old philosophical question, if, if a tree falls in a forest and there's no one there, does it still make a noise? And that's foolishness, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't matter. But this does matter. You need to always profess this. If there was no creation and there had never been a human being, would there be a God? The answer is yes. He, therefore, we can't say in His poor being, He's the Creator. Because if we do, then we just necessitated a creation. Is He still God if He doesn't have anything to rule? Yes. He doesn't need anything to rule to be God. He's God. Yes. He's simple, as we would say. Simple means non-confused. He doesn't need, he's, he's, excuse me, he's in, he is in a, um, we believe in the aseity of God. He doesn't need anything. He's at peace within himself. He's perfect. He's complete. Okay? And absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So he's, uh, he is a perfect being. So what do we profess as orthodox. So because I know you want to be orthodox Christians, right? We all want to be orthodox, right thinkers, right? We want to be careful and not speaking heresy, right? So we want to leave with something to know, trust. First, Christians are monotheists. That means one God. Okay? We get that clearly from passages like Deuteronomy 6:4, which I read earlier or I quoted earlier. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Israel repeated this over and over and over. It was a daily routine, a daily prayer. They knew that God is one. They believed that. They trusted that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there is no God but one God. There is only one God. 1 Corinthians 8 says this, 4. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and me and the man, Christ Jesus. So there's one God. There's, we are monotheists through and through, and there's tons of, there's tons of uh, places we could go in Old and New Testament to prove this. Um, but the basic truth, orthodoxy says there is one true God. Grace Fellowship believes there is one true God. Okay? And this one true God is not the God of Muslims. And He is not the God of Hindus. And He is not the God of Eastern mysticism. And He is not the God of a New Age movement. And He's not the God that this world acclaims and calls. And when they say to us, what's the big deal? We all worship God. No, we don't. He's not the God of modern day Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ because in rejecting Christ they have rejected God. They reject. Jews are not our brothers. Jews outside of Christ are lost. Just like Muslims, just like Hindus, they need to be evangelized. Okay? And so, we can't just get along. That's what breaks my heart about national prayers so often. Is this big attempt to get up and make a show and pray. And we pray in terms like, oh God, Christian pastors, oh God. I've even heard them pray. Great mover of things to be moved. What does that mean? What is that? I mean, it's trying to sound smart, but it just sounds dumb when you think about it. Right? 
the great God, the Almighty. When you start hearing those kinds of prayers, you have to, you have to, wait, you have to open your eyes. My suggestion is you open your eyes. Because you might, not be, you might be about to join in a prayer that ain't yours, right? And, it's, and the best way to descri- display that, you know, bowing our heads and closing our eyes is because we're in tune with what the person's praying. We're praying along with them. So what I always say is if I'm in a meeting and I was in one in Anniston not long ago and the guy starts praying to the Muslim God, I just open my eyes. Because I ain't praying. I don't agree with him. And I want him to know when he opens his eyes, I'm looking at him. I ain't, I ain't with you, brother. <laughs> and I'm hoping he'll say something, you know. He, they usually don't. But. And not to, not to be inflammatory, but because I want to take a stand that their God is not my God. We don't worship the same God. And we don't ever need to fall into that trap. So we are monotheists. There's only one God. Allah is not God. He's not God. Okay? Jehovah is God. Yahweh is God. The God of the Bible is God. Secondly, Orthodox Christians believe in that the deity, God, is Father, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Okay? So each of them, being persons of the one substance, are each God in their way. So we have a tri-unity or trinity in this way. And some people are bothered by that term, trinity. Let me just knock that in the head now. You can have a problem with the word Trinity. That's fine with me. But you're going to have a tough time talking in very short, sequential statements when we're talking about God. You're going to have to constantly refer to Him as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to constantly do that. So what people begin to do is to bring all that language together and say Trinity. Tri meaning three that enti that's left on the word is unity, tri-unity. They just brought it together in the Latin to say, this is what we believe. One God, three persons. Simple language, economical. It's nothing wrong with it. It's not the sign of the devil, as some people would think. Um, you think I'm kidding. You know, say Trinity in front of a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and watch their head spin on a swivel. Because they don't believe in a Trinity. That's why it will spin. Matthew 28, 19. It's a great place for us to see Jesus speak about the Trinity. When somebody tells me there's no language in the Bible that tells us there is a Trinity, I just flip to Matthew 28. Jesus says in verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. (coughs) Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I want you to follow this. Baptizing them in the name, singular, You see that? Not names, plural, name. They have one name, one essence, one substance. And what is the name? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. The article, the, repeated. If he didn't want to do that, if he wanted to say like the modalist, go baptize them in the name, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, then he would be, possibly leaving the door open that we would think, well, maybe that's just one expressing itself in three ways uh, at different times, in different moods, in different uh, situations. He's different things. Jesus doesn't leave the door open to that because he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So it's very clear these are three distinct persons inside of this one God, the substance of this one God. So the Bible does teach uh, that, that to us. If you look at Ephesians chapter 4, 
Paul expresses it this way for us. Ephesians 4, verse 4 through 6. <coughs> what is probably the oldest creed uh, in the church. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, notice, who is over all and through all and in all. So he recognizes one Spirit, capital, Holy Spirit, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and one God and Father of us all. He recognizes in his creed one God in three persons. So I would say the Athanasian Creed wasn't the first Trinitarian Creed. He just simply picked up what the Bible was teaching him, and he expressed it. And we're not going to get into all, there's a lot of technical things we could get into, but I don't want to do that to you, but rather just to try to make it as clear as possible. So on several occasions, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are mentioned together in united activity and purpose in the ministry of Jesus particularly. In uh, Luke one thirty-five, you don't have to flip to all these. We're gonna, I'm just going to throw them out there. You can jot them down. Luke one thirty-five in the conceiving of Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all active. And Luke brings them together in that verse, Luke 1, 35. In, in uh, Matthew 3, 16 and 17, and John 1, 33 and 34, Jesus is baptized. And at that act of baptism, the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. They're all three active in, there, in this. In the miracles, we often see Jesus uh, doing a miracle, and it says the Father, Him, and the Spirit are working in concert together. They're unified. Matthew 12 is an example of that. Matthew 12, 28. In the ascension back to heaven, Luke 24, 49 records for us all three persons of the one God acting together in the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. So when somebody tells you, wherever in your Bible do you see proof of the Trinity? It's everywhere. I'm just Picking, picking the easy ones. I mean, it's everywhere. Yeah, in, the, in Paul's letters, he typically refers to all three at the beginning and often will refer to them in close of his letter, all three again. Yeah, the basic word in the Bible of the Old Testament, the first word we see for God is Elohim. It's a plural in the Hebrew, okay? But if you, Hebrew scholars will tell you, if you press that too far, you end up in places and times where you don't want to be and so you have to be careful. You just have to kind of see it as a, a strand of evidence that there is a trinity in action, in concert. And so in uh, Genesis chapter 1, and, and so that's a good place. I'm glad you're here, David. It keeps me from um, boring everybody, slammed to death, and uh, we're getting close to time. We can conclude. I was going to say, so all of these are not sufficient. They're not good. I would even recommend don't, don't use particularly these. This one's better, but even that, I mean, you know, you can get into some, some sticky patches, okay? Um, and, uh, and people aren't very enamored with that anyway anymore in our society. So, uh, but leave these off. Don't use these uh, to talk about God because they're just going to confuse in the end. All right, so back away from those. This one, eh, I, you know, who am I to argue with something that's from the 400 ADs, but I think they could have done a better job. So what image did God create that we might see him? Jesus, yes. Who came in what? In the incarnation. 
If you go to Genesis 1, you see God's image of Himself. The verse Dave's talking about. Let us make man in our image. In our image. In our likeness. Okay, now I don't want to scare you and make you think, oh my goodness, our pastor's gone off the deep end. But Paul grabs it in 1 Corinthians 11. In verse 3, he says, God is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about headship and the relationship that exists in the Trinity and the relationship that exists in the wife and husband relationship. Why would he do that? Because if you look at Genesis chapter 1, it says... Let us, verse 26, let us make man, that, that word us, that plural there, is what uh, our Hebrew professor warned us. Don't, don't make too much of it. But I do think it's a strand. I do think it's a good thing to look at and say, you see, I, when God's expressing himself here and he's calling himself with the plural, us. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How did God create man? Adam, particularly. The male. How did God create him? Come on. From the dust of the earth. He formed him and he breathed life into him, right? Chapter 2 says after doing that, he then created animals and brought them in front of Adam so that Adam would see them and name them. And what did he say? That's not made for me. That's not made for me. That's the refrain of the second chapter. That animal doesn't work. It doesn't fit me. And God said because it wasn't good for man to be alone, he put Adam to sleep and he created woman. How? from the same substance as Adam. A woman is not a second type of being. She is one with the man of the same substance, and yet they're persons. God created something so that we might look at it and say, I see how this thing in the Trinity can work. Because the man... Mankind is one being. Anatomically, we are the same and yet of the same substance, yet different per individuals, persons. You see that? And in their original created without sin selves, they would have procreated and had little ones like them in the, in the image of God, in the image of Adam and Eve, and they would have spread and filled the earth and there would have been images of God throughout the world, covering the planet, having dominion and subduing it so that God would be looking at His creation and seeing Himself. And we, we would be looking at one another and seeing God, seeing the reflection of God in the other. And that relationship would have been unbroken, but then sin happened and we became very marred. And when we saw one another, we no longer saw each other in those pure relational terms. We saw each other as different, as sexual, and we, and we actually were ashamed. We began to separate. The community was broken. When the community was broken with God, our, our head, when, I, when that was broken, we then were broken from one another in relationship. And the image was 
then twisted, broken. And the gospel restores that. So it is possible in your marriage for you to put forth, you say, what practical thing? You said it would be practical. I'm getting there. I just had to lay all this groundwork. Husbands and wives, you have the greatest opportunity on the planet to image God to your children and the community around you through your marriage, through the one flesh union that you possess. All of the traits of mankind are summed up in the two becoming one. If we all were male, we would not be the image of God. And if we were all female, we would not be in the image of God. But male and female together, in that one substance dwelling, can image God. The love, yeah. Yes. It would be a bond. What bonds them together is the love, the, the, the expression of love, which is, as we understand it, at least the way God expressed Himself in the Spirit. Yes. And so that one flesh is possible. That community is possible. Now, because of sin, it's only possible for believers. When people, people talk about their marriages, you can't fix lost people's marriages to make it look like Christian marriages because it's not. They can never have one flesh like we have one flesh. That's why Paul said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because you will constantly, as the believer, be trying to gain something that's impossible for that lost one. They don't want one flesh. They want a business partnership. Or they want a friendship. Or they want something, usually self-motivated. But they don't want one flesh. They don't image, want the image of God to be displayed. They don't, because they don't even know what it is. And so Paul says, your, your life will be hard. You don't leave them, but your life will be hard. Okay, and so we have to... We have to that's why in Ephesians 5... Then God loved His Son. His Son loved the church. And the church loves the Son and the Father together. That, that love is supplied to us by the Spirit dwelling in us. The relationships that, that best image God are the relationship of a husband and wife. Based on the Trinity. So women, boy, we get real meddling here, can't we? Better cut the tape off. Okay. Women, when you won't fulfill your role in the marriage of submission, you're damaging the world's view of the Trinity. Men, when you rule over her with a hard iron fist of authoritarianism, you are damaging the world's view of how God loves His Son. You're destroying it. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. God is the head of the Son, of the Christ, and Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. So when you don't fulfill the roles God has assigned to you in the marriage, the gospel is being inhibited. It's being cut. You may be the greatest evangelist in the world, but if you don't love your wives, men, it's, you're failing in that area, and the gospel is being hindered. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, when he gives the qualifications for pastors, he must rule over his house well. Because his preaching will be cut off at the feet if he doesn't love his wife and his children the way he's called to love them. So it's that family relationship, not the family roles, don't misunderstand, but it's the family relationship, the dynamic in the family. So now, evangelistically, I'm worried about reaching my children. How do I reach my children? One of the great ways of evangelizing children is to be the husband God's called you to be and the father God's called you to be. 
and the mother God's called you to be and the wife God's called you to be. And in that, teaching them that that comes from God. That love comes from the Lord. And it trains their little minds to think of God right. Think of God right. And we have broken families. Then we have broken images of God, which have to be repaired and can be, thank God. By His grace, can be repaired. But let's don't do the damage so He can repair it, right? So that's why violence against women is an assault on the gospel. Men, when you lift your hand and hit your wife, that's a damning act. And when you abuse your children, that's a damning act. Because what you're actually saying is that's how God acts. He's abusive. He's short-tempered. He's quick to fly off at the handle. When we lose control of our tongue with our children and our discipline and we curse them or we curse about them, we're imaging God to them. They will have a hard time praying. If you're unapproachable, they'll have a hard time approaching God. Because they can't run from the Bible where it says God's Father. And they're going to automatically think, well, that's my Father. Uh-oh, I don't, my Father, uh-uh. So see how the gospel can overcome it. But let's don't create blocks for the gospel to overcome. Let's let's image him through this. So understanding the Trinity. So where I want to push you to is this little book. I promised you I'd give you this resource. I've read lots and lots and lots and lots of resources. And I've read lots of theologians. And this is the best by far book I've ever read. Little, isn't it? Little. Big, Big words and even got pictures in it. Huh? I mean, it's not hard to read. Delighting in the Trinity. It will change your view of who God is. It will help you know who God is. Because it's going to point you to Scripture and you're going to dig in there and then God's going to be beautiful. Okay? So, delighting in the Trinity. Michael Reeves. (coughs) He's currently a theological advisor at the University of Colleges and Christian Fellowships in the United Kingdom. He graduated from King's College with a Ph.D., I know we're, we're over time a little, but questions. Yeah, the begotten, the word begotten um, points to unique. The, the Greek, when we look back at it, it's uniqueness. The own, that's, why, that's why you see the word attached to it, only begotten from the Father. Okay, in John 1. So the onlyness, that uniqueness. So Isaac was begotten by Abraham in the Spirit. That set him a apart. He was the firstborn because he was begotten. He, he was special. He was unique in the family because he wasn't the firstborn. Ishmael was the firstborn, humanly speaking. But he wasn't the one whom the promise would come through. Right. So Isaac was a special. He was unique in that way. And it's an eternal uh, relationship. Um, that John 17 passage comes really close to saying, or it does say, that we had from the beginning that relationship which we had of glory from the beginning. So that, in the Greek, points us all the way back in eternity. There's no end to that. Like, when was the beginning? There, there, there's, it's, it keeps going. You know, it's, it infinitely stretches. So he was with the Father from the beginning. That word beginning helps us um, d- display. But if you have someone who refuses to believe it, it's, you know, you're going to struggle there. Yes? The, the, the man doesn't image God. Not perfectly. The woman doesn't image God. Not perfectly. But the two together image God. That's what God says. The two together image God. 
And so that's, that's, the, that's why it's the closest we can come. But in the end, faith says we believe it because God has said it. In a theological debate, you're going, that's, you know, they, they're not going to like that. But that, you know, that's why I'll press people towards presuppositional apologetics rather than the classical apologetics. And I think classical apologetics, I'm not as harsh as some. I don't think it's, un, it's totally useless. I just think it has to be married first to presupposition. What do I mean by that? Presuppositional means I believe things beforehand. I accept them as a fact. Like, there is a God. I'm not even going to debate that. That's not up for debate. The Bible never debates that. It just starts. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so it doesn't seek to explain how he came about because he didn't come about. And there's no reason to talk about that. He just said, this is it. And so that's a presupposition I enter into a de debate with. So I'm here and this guy's here. I'm never going to say in a discussion with an atheist, well, let's just assume there was no God. Because at the moment I say that, he wins. Because at the moment I say, well, let's just pretend there isn't a God and let's play that. And he's going to, in his mind, he's just won because you've just admitted the possibility that there is no God and that somehow the world could have existed without God. And it just may be that me, you and I aren't smart enough to figure it out, but you see what I'm saying? So when you're, when you're in a debate site setting, you have to hold to certain truths as they're not up for debate. In, the, in, in debate, they make you put them out there. Say, these are my presuppositions. This is what I'm going on. The Bible, God is God. The Bible is God's Word. Now, from there, let's talk. And the other side says, I don't believe there's a God, and I don't believe that book's anything but a historical document that tells us about how old, ancient Hebrew people thought about the world. Now, let's start the argument. He's on his island, I'm on mine. But we ain't ever going to, the two shall never meet, you know, in a sense, in the physical sense. I mean, our hope is the Holy Spirit brings him to our island, right? But the Holy Spirit has to do that. I can't do it. But then from that presuppositional beginning, I think you can use the classical arguments helpful in a helpful manner. But if you just try to do it, you end up, because what I did earlier was the teleological, um, was the tele teleological method of looking around, observing the world, and then going from there to reason that there is a God. Okay, but I told you the danger of that is you have a creator God, not if you're not careful, you end up reducing him to the creator as his essence, and that makes him dependent. So you just have to presuppose who he says he is, and then you can talk about him as creator, ruler. Those are unhelpful. They're just not the basis. We have to go from a basis. And that basis is going to put us in opposition from the rest of the world. And you got to be okay with that. It's hot in the kitchen. You can't leave the kitchen, but it's just the way it is. Yeah, it's a reasoned faith. It's a reasoned faith. Reason is not in opposition to faith. Faith is not in opposition to reason. In their essence, they can be held together, and it's a reasoned faith. And that's, so it's not contradictory. We don't believe in contradictions. One of my favorite um, lines in the movies, uh, the movie A Few Good Men, you remember that? They're in the courtroom, and they're having the argument, and he's wanting the truth. I want the truth. And what does he say? You can't handle the truth. God said that uh, to us, basically. You can't handle the truth. It's too big for your little mind. You'll just explode. You know, I just get the picture of, of if God really set down all of who he is and revealed it completely and uninhibited, it would evaporate all known creation. It would totally, he has 
to bring himself down into the image of man in Christ to show himself to us because we can't handle the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We can't handle it. We just, you know, you get that idea that God just, it just blows up. That's what would happen. Think of it this way. The best among us might have a 150 IQ. If God ain't bigger than that, we got problems. I mean, do you really want to trust something that low in its estate? I mean, God's got to be bigger, fellas. He's got to be bigger than us. Uh, that's just the way it is. And we love Him and we accept Him and we adore Him and we worship Him because He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. Right? All right. So we apply the Trinity in everyday life. It's not a far-off doctrine, although it can be, it's difficult. But it has to be wrestled with and comprehended to our fullest extent so that in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with one another, we're imaging God to the world. Okay? So without sin, man images God. With sin, Christ becomes a man. And then he images God for us in that unbroken, unsinned, stained way in the flesh. He proves that that's the way it was supposed to be. <coughs> but we couldn't. All right. Thanks for being here. It's a great, great crowd on a Sunday night. I know it's about 7.30, so 7.20. I'm not too bad off. Um, if you have questions and things, I, I can point you to some resources and try to help you a little um, in this thinking. But uh, thanks for being here. And we'll do this again uh, on another topic soon. All right, let's pray.